0: Once she knew the police was coming, she came back and waited for the police to arrive at the crime scene. She gave police a description on, at the crime scene that the assailant was five foot 8 dark, complected, African-American, wearing all black, with all black jogging pants with stripes down them like Adidas pants, uh, black shoes. She couldn't tell if he had facial hair or not. And that's what the police had on the first day.
1: Welcome to kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond.
2: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls.
1: Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Solitary Watch and Unlock the Box have teamed up to establish the Solitary Confinement Resource Center, a curated, searchable database of media, research, first-hand accounts, court and policy documents, and advocacy tools in the use of solitary confinement in U.S. prisons, jails, and juvenile detention facilities. About 80,000 people are held in isolation in the U.S. on any given day. Solitary confinement units and supermax prisons have been hidden from the public, policymakers, and the media. Although the system resists transparency, information on solitary is increasing but has remained scattered and difficult to access. The Solitary Confinement Resource Center Database is a central, comprehensive collection of resources for use by advocates, journalists, scholars, educators, attorneys, healthcare providers, corrections officials, survivors of solitary and their loved ones, and others concerned who want to expose one of the most hidden aspects of the criminal justice system.
2: Three recent surveys revealed Americans' views on the criminal justice system. One found that 55% of Americans believe the nation's criminal justice system discriminates against the poor, according to prison legal news. Constructing more jails and prisons ranked last on a list of quality life priorities on another survey. A third survey found that 71% of those queried supported a reduction in the prison population. 91% thought the criminal justice system needs reform. And more than two thirds reported they would be more likely to vote for political candidates advocating reducing the prison population and spending the savings on drug treatment and mental health programs. 72% said they'd choose a candidate who was opposed to mandatory minimum sentences. A majority of respondents thought the criminal justice system was racially biased. Two thirds thought it treated African Americans unfairly. said mentally ill people should not be incarcerated.
1: According to Prison Legal News, London-based Penal Reform International and the Thailand Institute of Justice recently published a report on incarceration across the globe. The report notes that in 2016, over 10 million prisoners were incarcerated around the world, either in pretrial detention or after having been convicted and sentenced. The report demonstrates that overincarceration isn't unique to the U.S. The report found that the increase in the world prison population has surpassed the rate of general population growth since the year 2000. The result has been more overcrowded prisons. Data suggests that the number of prisoners surpasses official prison capacity in at least 120 countries. Further, the report says, data indicates that the prison sentences in general are becoming longer, particularly for what are considered serious crimes. According to the report, other countries have many of the same problems that the U.S. has, including abusive police, excessive pretrial detention, over-sentencing, excessive use of life imprisonment, arbitrary use of capital punishment, and too much emphasis on non-violent drug crimes.
2: Detroit environmental justice organizer Suwatu Salama Ra was released from prison on November 14th, pending appeal after being incarcerated for 258 days. Co-director of the East Michigan Environmental Action Council, Ra was sentenced to two years in prison after she defended herself, her two-year-old daughter, and her mother from an assailant by drawing a registered unloaded gun. In a reversal of his original and controversial decision, Wayne County Circuit Court Judge Donald Knapp ruled that Ra wasn't a danger to others and should be released to be at home with her family during the appeals process. When she was jailed last spring, Ra was the mother of a three-year-old and seven months pregnant. She gave birth while in prison. At the time of her incarceration, Ra was fighting such polluters as the Detroit Renewable Power Trash Incinerator and Southwest Detroit's Marathon Oil Refinery which processes tar sands, crude oil.
1: This week, we hear from Leon Benson, who calls us from inside the Indiana prison system. You might remember some of Leon's story from a Kite line episode last year, called You Can't Force the State to Abide by the Law, in which his sister Valerie introduced Leon's story. Leon's been incarcerated for decades and is still navigating the prison system in an attempt to win his freedom. Now, he tells us about himself and walks us through the details of his case. Here he is.
0: My name is Leon Benson, and I'm an innocent political prisoner in the state of Indiana. I've been incarcerated since 1998 for a shooting murder I didn't commit. When I started my path through prison, I was unconscious and I didn't really know about the system that much. You would think somebody that was in the the street life, which I was in the street life. uh, I did things like average people do that's in urban America. So for me, you know, being confronted by the system was like a moment of truth. And it made me think about a quote or a passage by Dr. Bobby E. Wright. And it says, in a bull fight, after being brutalized while making innumerable charges at the movement of the tape, there comes a time when the bull finally turns and faces his adversary with the only movement being his heathen, bloody side. It is believed that for the first time, he really sees the matador. This final confrontation is known as the moment of truth. For the bull, this moment comes too late. I can look at many other people in my social economical condition here in America as that bull We don't recognize the moment of truth until it's too late. And for me, that moment of truth came when I was sitting in a trial in 1999 and found guilty for a murder I didn't commit. My case is based on eyewitness misidentification in the the near downtown area of Indianapolis, Indiana a young man who I didn't know at the time, never personally knew, but from the records, his name is Casey Shane. It was the night of August 8th, 1998, while he was sitting in his black Ram pickup truck on Pennsylvania Avenue. Somebody shot him down in his truck and left him there to die. According to the to the record, a witness, uh, Christy Smith, she was a Star newspaper deliverer. She said she was delivering her newspapers, and she was on the same side of the street as the shooting because the truck was parked on the street up against the sidewalk, and she had her van parked up against the sidewalk while she delivered the papers to a paper vending box on the streets. Between the back of the victim's truck and where she was standing was 49 feet. It was at nighttime between 3 and 3.30 in the morning. She began to load her her papers, according to the documents into the machine, and she heard pops and she looked up only to see flashes from the muzzle being fired into the uh, the cab of the truck and the assailant did take off running and cut behind the community center. Ms. Smith said that she was in fear of the shooter, the perpetrator coming back from around the building and with her still being there, she climbed into her van, attempted to call 911, couldn't get any service, drove down the street passing the victim in the truck, presumably dead or shot in the truck at the time. And she passed by him and passed the parking lot where the shooter ran into. She claimed there were many, 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 many people in the parking lot scattering around, running around. She, she passed it two blocks, makes it past, two, uh, past the scene, two blocks past the scene, and finally get. Dispatch from 911. Once she knew the police was coming, she came back and waited for the police to arrive at the crime scene. She gave police a description on, at the crime scene that the assailant was five foot eight, dark complected African American, wearing all black with all black jogging pants with stripes down them like Adidas pants. Uh, black shoes. She couldn't tell if he had facial hair or not. And that's what the police had on the first day. At the time of the crime, which I didn't know it was a crime that was happening at the time, I was in a building two blocks away. And I did hear shots. While I was in this apartment building in the hallway hanging out, uh, illicit activity going on in this apartment building. The nickname of this apartment building was Little Vietnam, ironically. So I'm near me, Timothy Gaither, uh, a couple, a lot of people that use drugs was there. Joe, people in the building use drugs, everybody was there. Shirley Gaskin was there. And these people I'm naming were around fire, doing, or a little bit after the shooting, or the shot sound. But we was in the back of the building, and, and the shot sounds went off. We knew it was close, so everybody paused. Shirley Gaskin was leaving out of the door, the back of the building, and she jumped back in. We had people investigate the size of the building. (laughs) Nothing was there. We just went on back to what we was doing. I know this might sound callous and apathetic, but the reality of it was, most of us in these urban communities that was riddled with crime and poverty was used to hearing gunshots. We were desensitized to gunshots. And it was around 4th of July and, you you know, the summertime, not around 4th of July, but it still was summer. You would hear occasional fireworks or firecrackers go off. So we we just went back to what we was doing. Soon after that, I left, walked and left and, and went to an apartment. Six days later, a gentleman by the name of Donald Brooks told the police that I had some involvement in the crime. I was sitting on New Jersey and 13th Street in Indianapolis, Indiana, on the stoop of my uncle's girlfriend's house when I ran across Donald Brooks and Shirley Gaskin and another male companion they had. They was telling me about how the police was all in the area, things like that. We, we sat and had a couple of drinks, talked. Brooks left my presence with another individual, left me and Shirley sitting there, and he sicked the police on me. He said, the guy who I believe was involved in the crime is sitting over there. And the police, they arrested me. So this is August the 14th of 1998. So when I go back to the police precinct, I'm pretty intoxicated. I fell asleep, handcuffed to a wall. When I woke up, they was questioning me about a murder. The murder that happened to the young man, uh, who I would later find out was Casey Shane. He was a 23-year-old, white, middle-class man from Plainfield, Indiana. And I didn't have nothing to do with it. I denied everything, maintained my innocence. I had nothing to do with it. I even gave police a statement of my whereabouts, which was in that building, and the police soon arrest me for the murder of Casey Shane, claiming...
1: You have one minute remaining.
0: Uh Uh-oh. Claiming that two eyewitnesses seen me commit the crime. what I want to do is, is I want to let all the listeners know out there that I have been Stonewall in Indiana courts. One reason why the ruling, first let me, let me, let me, let me give you some, 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 some history on the ruling. The ruling is bogus. The Corey Falls. They say it was an ineffective assistance, of counsel. The big thing about the ineffective assistance of trial counsel is I could not bring Timothy Miller into PCR court because he was living in San Diego, California. And according to uh, uh, PCR proceedings, which is a civil proceeding, not a criminal one. The civil proceeding didn't have a compulsory process to bring him in. And we did due diligence and we showed the court an affidavit uh, investigator, certified male, and Miller refused to cooperate. Now, in the absence of Miller in the court, the court will usually take on the presumption that the counsel will fight every allegation made against him with a strategy. So the court took on that posture in the absence of trial counsel Timothy Miller. Now, we requested the court take away the presumption. The presumption is that the court will assume or presume that counselor would have fought the allegations with strategy. Well, we asked to take that off the table because he refused to cooperate, which under civil proceedings would mean e-d in, meaning I automatically supposed to win because he refused to cooperate, but the court didn't do that. They didn't rule on him. They tried to sweep it under the rug. It's still there for a federal court. So now let me get to this fact, the, other, the other aspects of the case since that is understood. The Corey father, witness who gave police a statement. Five days after the crime, Cosley identified another person as being the shooting. One of the things in Dakari's statement with what he said was, I seen the shooter earlier. I know who he is. And in the camera bag, he had a gun. The court said, what type of gun? He said, a three eighty automatic. They said, how do you know it's a three eighty automatic? Dakari said, because. I owned the same brand before. It's a, Davis's, a Davis Industries. And I was like, damn, you know. So he tells this story. He said he seen it later on that night, about an hour or two later. The same individual that he'd seen with the gun was doing a shooting into the truck. He was at a distance a, little, a lot closer. He was about 50. He was about 25 yards away from the shooting in this position. So he was a lot closer than the state's witness who was 49 feet away. So the Corey, he said, that's who I seen. I I knew who he was. He had the same clothing on. Now mind you, the Corey testimony corroborates with Smith testimony, the so-called state's eyewitness who said she seen a dark-skinned individual from 49 yards away at night wearing all black with white stripes Fire into a cab of a truck, which unfortunately killed the brother, Casey Shane. Oh, so his description of the clothing of what the perpetrator had on matched her description. The only difference is he knew this person personally. And then the only difference was his description of the gun corroborated with actual bullet casings found on the scene. Three eighty automatic bullet casings. So when we see the we see the judge, she was erroneous in her ruling to try to say DeCorey, he's not credible. That's not on her to decide. That's for a jury to decide. Two, how was she based this argument as trial strategy because he was unreliable because he was in the streets. He was a drug dealer. Make make no mistakes. Everybody in this case, except for the state's witness, were people from the streets who had backgrounds. But they didn't mind using them, you know, to, to try to back their case. Not at all. But all of a sudden, because he had a past, he's unreliable. So 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 here's the... Fallacy or the illogical foundation of that argument that you ran, she said it was trial. It was trial strategy that the counsel used not to call him for those reasons. But how would the trial lawyer know all that if he never interviewed Dakari ford when Dakari was in the custody of the state the whole time? How could it be strategy when he never interviewed this witness to no? know? exactly what he was going to say. How? So that's, that's a, that's an argument blew out the water. Uh, another thing that I, I want you guys to consider how I was stonewall so bad. Another issue was a state's witness, a, 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 a liar, uh, a fraud, uh, Donald Brooks, Donald Brooks. Gave a, a statement after I was arrested, a out of court statement, and he make all these claims. He claimed that he was in the window of an apartment, and he claimed that he seen me and all these other people on the scene. I was not there. I got two witnesses that have testified that they I was with them in a the building. Shirley Gaskin, Timothy Gaither. I have, I have another witness who, who testified that I had on clothing contrary to the description of the Kari and the state's witness Schmidt. But this guy, he claimed I was on the scene uh, before he went into the building and then he heard shots. He looked out the building and he claimed that he seen me and all these other people on the scene and me leaving, going towards the building that I was in, which was like a block away. So he make these absurd claims. So he never said he's seen anybody do anything. He trying to make it like as if I was there and I wasn't. So when he come to testify, he's like, Nah, I don't know, man. I yeah, I don't remember none of that, man. That's what I'm saying today, man. I'm not saying he did it. So he's on the stand saying this, the states treat him as a hostile witness. Oh, are you afraid to testify because you are gonna get stitches. Snitches get stitches. Um, and the direct appeal to Supreme court found that it was erroneous for the state to question their own witness like that, but they called it a harmless error in light of Christy Smith's testimony as a eyewitness. So we got that out the way in the same trial. He's dismissed as a witness. The prosecution comes with his out of court statement. Can I put this into evidence? Judge say, Defense, do you object? My lawyer, no. Nah. The prosecution say, I didn't think I was going to get this in. Can I publish it? Hey, if the defense uh, counsel don't mind, I don't mind, Your Honor. Matter of fact, when he read it, I'm going to go take a nap. This is a paid lawyer, though. I'm going to go take a nap. So he reads this statement before the jury. Now, mind you, I gave you the scenario that he was treated as a hostile witness then dismissed. So what's in the air is, man, you don't want to tell the truth, Donald. So we going to tell the truth to the people now. So You was lying. So this is the truth. And it was BS. Hearsay, BS, uncharged crimes, lies, irrelevant content. So that's that's an admissible statement. So... The judge who ruled on the PCR, she said, well, it was trial counsel strategy not to object to that statement because in the first trial, the court allowed it, and then she cited my case law in the Indiana Supreme Court that was ruled, and that that, she said that particular issue came up about the statement before. So trial counsel wasn't ineffective. Because it was his strategy not to do it. Now, look at this. And these are two issues. And I'll give you one more before I move on. But in the first trial, it was a conference held that the state could not read that statement in its entirety. That the state could not put that statement into evidence. However, the state could Read back the statement and use parts to refresh the witness's memory. And that's what they tried to do. My lawyer objected at that time. No, nah, you know, yay. You know, no, nah, you want to do it like this in the court. They the state how to do it. So the state never was admitted into evidence. So the PCR judge misquoted the record. Then in my uh, first appeal that she was quoting from, It wasn't about the statement. It was about the prosecution questioning his own witness. She misstated the facts again. Bogus ruling. The next thing, and there's other ineffective issues in there, but these three three main things is just so glaring to me. The, The newly discovered evidence, which was presented by Jeffrey Loftus, which was an empirical, which is an empirical psychologist and Washington University he had came up with a new scientific vision and distance analysis in 2004 that occurred five years after my conviction so it was newly discovered evidence so his evidence that he brought his science that he brought he said a person with 50-50 vision cannot recognize a face at 50 yards away in broad daylight and up under poor lighting conditions the loss of visual information triples so at night somebody viewing a face from 50 yards away it'd be the equivalent in the daytime of viewing them at 150 yards away in both instances it's impossible humanly impossible impossible scientifically impossible that a person can recognize a face the witness in my case the only eyewitness in my case Christy Smith didn't have twenty-twenty vision in the ad, I need to insult when the first time I seen this lady, this woman, she had Coke bottle thick glasses. I was like, wow. You know, she didn't have 2020 vision.
1: We'll hear more from Leon in next week's episode. This has been Kiteline. Anyone can reach us via our PO Box, Kiteline Radio, PO Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at, at wfhb.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon patreon.com forward slash Radio. You can follow us on all social media platforms by searching for KiteLine Radio or find us on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5:30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.